And I just pray that you're with us this morning as we go over this important text, Lord. I thank you for inspiring Paul to write it, Lord, that this is your words to us, Lord, about salvation, about grace, Lord. I pray that we are humbled by this text this morning as we go over who we were before you acted in our lives, Lord, and and what you have done, God, to bring salvation, to bring a relationship with you, to bring a closeness with you, Lord. I pray that we are just humbled, and then that humility, Lord, we love each other. I pray for that this morning. pray that you're with me as I speak in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I love uh, basketball. I know that's probably not a surprise, but... uh, uh, I love basketball because it's the best sport. <laughs> Did I get an amen over here? Yes. <laughs> All right. And I really love the NBA. I love watching the NBA. Uh, I've been watching the, the NBA since the late 80s, and uh, it's been something that's been in our household um, just growing up watching the Lakers play. Uh, You know, over those years, as I've been watching the NBA, something interesting has happened. And that really is that basketball has become a global sport. really has. And again, that's because it's the best sport. Just want to be clear on that. Most NBA teams now, if you you go look at the roster, you'll find players from all over the world. Um, And they're all unified on these teams in a common goal a common game plan, and if you look at the teams, they are wearing even common jerseys from a city that's represented by them. I mean, some players on these teams barely even speak English anymore. It's just amazing to me. And it's what I love about team sports. It brings individuals together and unifies them for a common goal and purpose. In college, I played basketball, and uh, at one point, on a team that I was on, I was the only white guy in the whole entire team. And I was the only uh, uh, player that wasn't from some big city, from some inner city of a big city. We had a player from uh, New York, two players from Augusta. We had a player from New Orleans, L.A., Compton. We had two players from Fiji that were on our team, and then we had me from Tehachapi. <laughs> and I remember when I first started playing with this team, um, it was right after high school, I was just so nervous for the first practice, and not because of basketball, but more just wondering how I was going to, to fit in. But here's the amazing thing, again, about basketball, in so many ways, the, the sport and being on the same team just united all of us, all of us from different backgrounds, and, and we became a team, and that included me, and honestly, all these guys that were, were, grew up in such different cultures than I did, we became really good friends. I bring this up because I think of team sports as a lot as I watch and, and think about the different backgrounds that are on different teams. And it always makes me think, if basketball could unite, right, bring unity to strangers from totally different backgrounds and cultures, shouldn't the deepest, most profound, most personal aspect of our lives, salvation, shouldn't it unite us in loving one another? should be united in love and purpose. And I remind you, as we've been going through Ephesians, the theme of Ephesians is I don't want to get lost as we dig in so deep of what the second half of Ephesians is all about, right? The theme of Ephesians is the depth of God's grace lived out in love. 
the depth of God's grace lived out in love. Today we're going to be going over Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which I believe is probably the clearest passage in all of Scripture on salvation. Who we were before Christ, or before God acted in our lives, and what God did. And these two truths should, first of all, humble us individually. And secondarily, it should unite us corporately. And I think that's Paul's purpose as you look at the, the argument that he's laying out in Ephesians. To, to unite us in love for each other, to humble us as individuals. So there's three points uh, of today's sermon that I'd like to go over. And the first point is our, our past condition. The second point is a purposeful salvation. And the third point is praise owed, owed to God. Our past condition, a purposeful salvation, praise owed to God. So let's start with our past condition. This is who we were before we were saved. Look at verse 1. And you were dead. We're dead. The Greek word here for dead, I said last week, is nekros, which means corpse. There's actually two Greek words that, that the New Testament used for dead. Right? And Paul uses both of them. The first, the first word is uh, thanatos, which is used 120 times, about 120 times in the New Testament, which means dead or in process of dying or in danger of death. And then there's necros, which is used 128 times, almost, almost exactly 120 times to 128 times. These are words very commonly known by Paul and used by Paul and the New Testament authors. And necros means dead, corpse, dead body, lifeless. The definition, actually, when I look this up, is pertaining to being unable to respond to anything. That's a corpse, right? Unable to respond to anything. The early church fathers actually used this word necros to describe pagan gods because they were lifeless, unable to respond to your prayers. That's always in contrast to the living God. And this is important because there's many people that say Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2 verse 1 means almost dead. Or good as dead. It's like a a person on their deathbed and Jesus is offering medicine, which is the gospel. And all you have to do is take that medicine. And if you don't take that medicine, you're going to die. Or it's it's like a a person out in the middle of the sea without a boat and, and Jesus is throwing you a life preserver. And all you have to do is grab onto that life preserver. If you don't, you're going to die. Paul doesn't use thanatos. He uses necros, which means dead body. It's not on deathbed. It's in the tomb rotting. Right? It's not out at sea. It's on the, on the bottom of the ocean, dead. In fact, I think a good illustration of this is Ezekiel chapter 37 when, with the valley of dry bones. Right? Dry bones can't respond or do anything. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead. This is talking about spiritual death. What's it mean to be spiritually dead? It means before salvation, we were dead in our relationship with God. We were lifeless to God. Unable to respond to God. Unable to do God's will. We were dead to God. Skevington Wood writes this, Spiritual death means that the most vital part of man's personality, the spirit or the inner man, 
is dead to the most important factor of life, and that's God. And Paul uses necros, which means corpse, completely spiritually dead. How? Well, look at verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses in Greek means breaking the law of God by some false step or failure. Sins in Greek means to act contrary to the will and law of God. Both words are datives of sphere or realm, meaning mean we, we were born into the realm of, of trespasses and sins. We were born into sin. It was our nature. We were born spiritually dead, physically alive, but spiritually dead. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were literally the walking dead. Again, physically alive, spiritually dead. Following two things. Following the course of the world. The course of this world. Which means worldly system or worldly standards. The world is, is the evil system of this world that is totally under the grip of the devil. It's philosophies, teachings, ideas, cultures, attitudes, thoughts, cravings, lusts, desires, activities that are in opposition of God. Before we were saved, we were, verse 2, following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. The prince here is Satan. We were under Satan's dominion, he was our prince. The prince of the power of the air, just meaning that, that Satan just fills the air of this world. We were of this world, and Satan was our prince. But it gets worse. Look at verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The ESV, which I just read, says the the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, which makes it sound like Satan is the spirit. But I think the NASB actually gets it, gets it right when it says, according to the prince of power of the air, of the spirit. In other words, Satan is prince over the spirit. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's just a spirit in the air, a disobedient spirit, a rebellious spirit. It's a spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience within the world. And then look what Paul says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. This was you. This was me. Before salvation. Sons of disobedient. I want you to see what Paul does. Look, look at verse 1. It says, and you. And you were dead. Then verse 2, in which you which you once walked. Then in verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Paul is including himself here. And why, why does Paul do this? We've got to remember the context and the purpose of Ephesians. The context of Ephesians, this is a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles. Right? It was mostly Gentiles with a few Jews. And the purpose of Ephesians, I really believe, is unity and love. Right? And so Paul is telling the church, you were, you were, you were. And then he gets to verse 3 and says, we all were. Jews and Gentiles. We all were sinners. 
we all were spiritually dead. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Look at verse 3. In the passions, that's epithumeo, epithumeo, which means passions or lust, right? In the passions of our flesh, that's sarcos, which is, is flesh. In other words, we did what felt good. In the second part, it says, carrying out the desires, that's stele mea, which means will or choice, carrying out the, the will or, or choice, the desires of the body, that's sarcos again, that's flesh. We did what felt good and we did what we wanted. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Right? We used our minds, in other words, we used our thinking to justify our, our lusts, to justify our sinful ways. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived, in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. That word wrath is a genitive of destiny. In other words, we were children destined for wrath. We were children destined for hell. This is who we were before we were saved. Right? This is who we were before God acted. This is, this is who we were before but God found in verse 4. Let me just ask a question. Is that humbling? Because it should be. And it should give us a heart for lost humanity because that's who we were. And side note, I just... I bring this up because I see this a lot in conservative Christian circles. Right? We put our politics, we let our politics get in the way of our compassion. Look at the end of verse 3. This should humble us. We were by nature children of wrath, look at the last part, like the rest of mankind. Before we were saved, before God acted, before God did something, before the but God, we were like the rest of mankind. Spiritually dead. Listen, I bring this up because Muslims, homosexuals, liberals, these people are not our enemies. They're not our enemies. They're our mission field. We should have a, a desire to reach them. We should have a a heart with compassion for these people. Because we're no better. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Don't let your politics get in the way of your compassion and love. Especially as politics are getting so much more heated as the election is coming up. I want to be clear on this, too, because part of love is speaking boldly, speaking truth boldly. So I'm not saying don't speak truth, but speak truth in love. All I'm saying is we are Christians first, Republicans or Democrats second, and not even second, probably not even third or fourth or fifth. Like the rest of mankind, 
That's our first point, is our past condition. Again, that should humble us. Second point this morning is a purposeful salvation. Look at verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which, or with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Listen, salvation is a miracle. It's a miracle. We were dead. We were corpse. We were lifeless. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, his actions, his grace, his giving, by grace you have been saved. It took a miracle to save you. You know, it's exactly what Jesus showed us and told us in the Gospels. Most of Jesus' miracles showed us that, that salvation is a miracle. The blind seeing, raising the dead, healing the sick, feeding the hungry are all miracles to show us that we were blind spiritually, that we were dead spiritually, that we were sick spiritually, that we were hungry spiritually, and our spirits needed a miracle to be saved. And Jesus doing all these miracles was showing us that, that he had the power. He had the power to perform that miracle in our souls. He didn't just show us, though. He also told us salvation is a miracle. Remember John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and asked Jesus, what does it take to get into the kingdom of God? In in essence, asking, what does it take to be saved, Jesus? And Jesus answered in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom, Nicodemus. It will take a miracle for you, Nicodemus, to be saved. In fact, why don't you turn with me to to Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Verse 18 says this, a ruler and a ruler, this is a the rich young ruler, this, this, this ruler is extremely wealthy, as it says a little bit later in the story. And most of us are familiar with this story, but I think a lot of us misunderstand it, at least the nuances within this story, because we don't know the context around the story. So I'm going to try to explain it as we go through this. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is the same question that Nicodemus came to Jesus with. What must I do to be saved? What work? What do I need to do to be saved? Let me just share the context here because it's really important to understanding the story. Right? Jews believed that rich people were rich because they were blessed by God. The reason they were blessed by God was because they were righteous. They were good. Jews thought the, the wealth came from righteous living. This man thought he was righteous because of his wealth. And he's been told that his whole life. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus pretty much is saying, Hey, listen, you're not righteous. (laughs) You're not good. No one is good except for God. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus was being straight with this guy and saying, You are not good. I know you think you are, but you're not. 
And so Jesus proves it. Look at verse 20. You know what the, what, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, this is the rich young ruler, and he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. Again, this man thought he was righteous. He thought he was good. He's been told that his whole life. He has the wealth to prove it. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you, you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And then verse 24, this is the point that I'm trying to get out. Jesus, seeing that he had, or that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, I think most Christians misunderstand this, this passage. Remember, wealth was considered a blessing by God, blessing by God because of righteousness. Everyone thought that the, the rich were blessed by God because they were good, because they were righteous. So when Jesus asked how difficult um, it is for, the, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, in essence, people heard how difficult is it for a righteous person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it for someone that is good to enter the kingdom of God? Then Jesus says something shocking in verse 25. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Just so you know, that's impossible. The camel going through a needle. It's impossible. I mean, that's Jesus' point. It's impossible. I mean, look at verse 26. For those who heard it said, then who can be saved? If the righteous aren't good enough, then who can be saved? I mean, that's the point. That's the point Jesus is making. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, than for anyone to be saved. Right? It's impossible to be saved. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. Again, And Nicodemus asked, how? How can I be born again? And Jesus said, you can't. It's impossible for man to be born again. But look at verse 27. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus is saying salvation is a miracle. It's a miracle. It comes from God. It does not come from man. There's nothing you can do, Nicodemus. There's nothing you can do, rich young ruler. It has to come from God. Now turn back to Ephesians 2, verse 4. Verse 4 says this, But God... Being rich in mercy, that's who he is. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his, the great love with which he loved us. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead, that's net cross, corpse. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the miracle. Right? That's impossible. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's three main verbs that are used here in verse 5 and 6. 
It's what God did in his actions. Verse 1, God made us alive. He brought spiritual life, which is a miracle. It's God's work. It's his grace. It's his gift. That's what grace means. Unmerited favor. Right? Free gift. By grace, by God's actions, you have been saved. The second verb is found in verse 6. God raised us up with him. Just like Jesus was raised from the dead, the miracle, the power it took, the miracle it took to raise Jesus from the dead. It's the same that it took to raise our dead spirits, our spiritual deadness to life. And the third verb, God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why did God do all of this? We'll look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, we're trophies. We're trophies of God's mercy and grace. God is both merciful and gracious, and he has been from eternity past. And both his mercy and grace is displayed in us. And will be for eternity. Look at verse 7. In the coming ages... For eternity. I hope that's humbling. You know, we get so consumed with us. And we get so consumed with us. And we go to the scriptures and we go, what's this, what's this have to say about me? What's this telling me? Right, listen, even our own salvation is not primarily about us. It's about him. It's about God's grace being, being put on display for eternity. Salvation is God's work. It took a miracle to save us, to raise us from the dead, to bring life to us, to rebirth us. And God did all of this, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's Ephesians 1.6. It's all to the praise of God's glorious grace. All to the praise of God. Which leads us to our last point. Praise owed to God. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul wants to be extremely clear. All the glory goes to God. All the credit goes to God. All the praise goes to God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. There is no room for boasting in the Christian walk. Unless you're boasting in Christ. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. This is actually a restatement of verse 5. I look at verse 5 real quick. Same thing, for by grace you have been saved. Now look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved, Paul adds, through faith. That's belief, trust, and hope in Christ. In other words, this is a narrow salvation. For those who have faith. It's not a universal salvation. It's not everyone is saved. It's grace alone through faith alone. Look at verse 8. For by grace you you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now, there's an important question we need to ask when we come across verse 8. 
what is the antecedent to the word this? In other words, what does that word this, the pronoun, what's that word this point back to? What is it replacing? Is it replacing the word grace? Is it replacing the word saved? Is it replacing the word faith? In English, it seems like it's replacing the word faith because faith is the closest noun to the word this, and that's kind of how English works. But remember, Greek doesn't work the same way English does. Greek words have genders. It's kind of like Spanish. Every word has a masculine gender, a feminine gender, or a neuter gender, which is extremely helpful when it comes to pronouns because the pronoun normally agrees in gender with the word it's replacing. Right? I mean, make, we do this in English, too, just not as much. If I said Nathan and Sarah went to the grocery store and, and he picked up some apples, the pronoun he, you know I'm talking about Nathan. If I said she picked up some apples, the pronoun she, you know, would be talking about Sarah. Well, it's extremely helpful here because uh, it's interesting in Ephesians 2.8 because grace is a feminine word. Faith is a feminine word. And saved is a masculine participle. Guess what gender the word this is? Neuter. In other words, it doesn't agree with any word in the previous clause. Therefore, it points back to the whole phrase. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, that whole thing, is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. James White, a theologian, said this, the word this is a neuter gender in the Greek language. Faith is a feminine term and have been saved as a masculine participle. There is nothing in the first phrase that matches this in gender. Instead, the neuter demonstrative pronoun this refers to the entire entirety of the preceding clause. Look at verse 8 again. Or a grace you have been saved through faith. And all of this, all of this is a gift which includes faith. Otherwise, the statement would be redundant. We think about this. The word grace means a free gift, right? Unmerited favor. So to say grace is not of yourself, it's a gift, would be redundant. You'd be saying it's a gift, and that's a gift. That's what it would be like saying. To say by grace you have been saved, it's a gift, that would be redundant. It would be saying like, Salvation is a gift, and, and just so you know, that's a gift. And, and, I, and I believe that's why Paul doesn't add that's a gift in verse 5. He says, for by grace you have been saved, and he doesn't need to add that's a gift. But verse 8, it says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and all of this is a gift. Before we get too proud of even our own faith, before we look down at other people because they don't have faith, Paul makes a very quick clarification. Even faith is part of this gift. Skevington Wood says, lest faith should be in any way misinterpreted as man's contribution to his own salvation, Paul immediately adds a writer to explain that nothing is of our own doing, but, but everything is in the gift of God. Which leads to a question. And this is a question I was wrestling with all last week. How is faith part of this gift? And I want to be clear here. There's, there's definitely a mystery here. Because the Bible is also clear that faith comes from our own heart. You must have faith. 
You must have faith to be saved. God doesn't have that faith for you. When you put your faith in Christ, it's your faith. The Bible is clear on this. Luke 17, 19 says this, And he said to them, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke 5, 20, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And there's many more passages. I don't have time to go through them all. There's a lot. It's salvation by grace through faith, and man is responsible for that faith. And I just want to be clear on this, because as I've said before, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. When John 3.16 says, "For, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, that whoever believes means whoever believes. Whoever repents and believes will be saved. And whoever doesn't believe will pay the penalty of their sin and will be held accountable for their unbelief. I just want to stop right here and say, if you're not a Christian this morning, I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than this. I mean, this is one of the clearest passages on salvation in all of Scripture. We are saved by grace. That means God's work. God sent his son, died on the cross for our sins. He did all the work through faith. That means put your faith in Christ. To be honest, I'm not asking you. The Bible commands you to do that. But then you get to Ephesians 2, 8, and you see that faith is also part of this gift. How do those two things go together? I, I don't know. Right? It's a mystery. But listen, and I think this is important. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 makes it clear that unless life is brought to our dead souls, we are hopeless. We are unable to respond to God, even in faith. One pastor put it this way, a person who is spiritually dead cannot even make a decision of faith unless God first breathes into him the breath of spiritual life. So look at Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. And I want to just be clear, that's God's work. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Then you get down to verse 8. Look what verse 8 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Masterpiece. Masterwork. That word workmanship in Greek is poema. It means, it means the, the, like a work of a craftsman, like, like a, a sculpture. Someone's sculpting something and it becomes a masterpiece. We are his creation. We are his masterpiece. Therefore, he gets all the glory. It's interesting, in Greek, Paul puts the his out of order in what you would normally see in Greek, which is, which is normal when you're trying to emphasize something. Paul is emphasizing God. He's emphasizing God's work. Verse 10, for we are 
his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I think this passage makes it as clear as can be that good works don't save us, right? We all got that this morning. Nothing we do good saves us. But they do have a big role to play in living out our salvation. Good works are are a fruit of salvation, of new life. Good works are, are a sign of salvation. In other words, salvation, new life, being born again will produce good works. Because we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's amazing. Even our good works after salvation, God gets all the glory. Gets all the glory. One theologian said this, believers are called to walk in the good works that God has previously prepared for them. Salvation from beginning to end, even the good works believers perform, is a result of God's grace. There is therefore no boasting before God, since he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, 2. Let me just end this sermon this morning with with telling you why I think Paul put this here. A lot of people love Ephesians 1 through 10. I'm one of them. I love it because it's one of the most humbling passages in all of Scripture. Is it not? I mean, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, show us who we were before God acted dead. But by God's grace, now alive. Verses 1 through 3, I just want to make this clear, is, is, is your part. It's our part. That's, who, that's what we did, right? Verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, and you, and you were dead. That's you, right? Verse 2, and you were following the course of this world, and, and you were following the prince and the power of this air. That's, that's you. It's me. It's who we were before salvation. Verse 3, you lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Verse 1, and you, verse 4, but God. Verses 4 through 10 is God's work. Verses 1 through 3 is what we did. Verses 4 through 10 is what God did. Listen, you didn't save yourself. If you're a Christian this morning, you didn't save yourself. God did. You didn't bring life to yourself. God did. Therefore, Christians should be the most humble people in the world. We owe everything to grace. Next week, we're going to start looking at Ephesians 2, 11, verse 11 through chapter 3. And I think most people stop at chapter, or verse 10, and that's a shame. Because there's a purpose why Paul wrote Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Right? Paul is going to start dealing with unity and love within the church. And I believe Ephesians 1 through 10 is the foundation to unity and love. It's why we should love each other. We all come from the same exact place, deadness. It's why we should be patient with each other. It's why we should be gracious towards each other. We all came from the same place. Again, deadness, and we've all experienced God's grace, his working in our life. And that should unite us. It should unite us as a body.
Listen, if basketball could unite NBA players from all around the world on these teams, if basketball could unite a white kid from Tehachapi with a bunch of inner city kids from New York and Compton, how much more should God's grace unite us as a church? I think that's the reason Paul writes Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, for inspiring Paul to write Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, these verses that we've gone over, Lord, are, are from you to us. It's your revelation, making it so crystal clear who we were before you entered entered into our lives, before you acted. We were dead following the course of this world, Lord. And I know we live in a nation that is still feeling the, the after effects, Lord, of being a Christian nation, that the, your common grace is found in America and in so many places, Lord. And it's by that common grace that we weren't as ugly as we could have been. But we're just as dead. We were just as dead as anyone found in any other country outside of America. It should humble us, Lord. I pray that it does. We don't see people as our enemies, Lord. Ideas, philosophies, yes, those, those come from Satan. They, they have a, almost a personality that come with them, Lord, and, and those are our enemies. Those are the, the, the techniques and weapons of our enemies, Lord, but people aren't. Lord, I pray that we have a heart to reach people that are lost, Lord. But I also pray that humility just infiltrates the church. Lord, that we as Country Oaks, I'm talking about our church, Lord, that each person that is a part of this church understands where we come from. That we all were spiritually dead, Lord, and you brought life to us, Lord, and, and we're, all, we're all a part of that. I pray that it just unites us in love and patience and, and grace towards each other, Lord. That people would look at our church and go, why do they love each other so much? That's my prayer, Lord. In your son's name, amen.